This episode of That Does Suit Madam is brought to you by Grace Brothers Way Out Boutique, Dolly Clobber for Bijou Measures. Mr. Brandon, are you free? I'm free. Hey, I'm Jeffrey. Ooh, Jeffrey, what a beautiful name. Ooh, and it does suit you. I like you, Jeffrey. I really do like you, Jeffrey. <laughs> and I'm Brandon, and this is That Does Suit Madam, a podcast about are you being served? Hello, Mr. Jeffrey. Hello, Mr. Brandon. Hello, Unanimous. Hello, Unanimous. Guess what? We are talking about a fan favorite today. Oh my golly gosh, what an exciting episode. Whose name escapes me at the moment. No, the old <laughs> order changes and boy does it, although very briefly. Very, very briefly, but this is a great, great episode. It's got us out of a little bit of a slump, but this one and the next one are Cracker Jack episodes. I'm really looking forward to uh, to talking about this. And we are going to have a whole bunch of people probably listening to this podcast for the first time. Hello, people. Yeah, um, we had a very... Hold on. Hold on. That was, that was Gladys. What about Esmeralda? Oh, wait. Wrong one. Hold on. Whoa! You got a double <laughs> dose of that. Um, so new, new listeners on board is kind of what Mr. Jeffrey, in this episode, he's Mr. Jeffrey, is what he was alluding to. Um, we had a lot of folks... Head on over to our Facebook page, and so you're very welcome. And who are those people, Mr. Jeff? We've got a whole bunch of new listeners. So we want to thank you and welcome you, Mike, Teresa, Gabby, Tammy, Giles, Gee, Michael, Dave, Gail, Pilar, Billy, Kay, Christy, Sarah, Laura, Marta, Dim, J- nope, Dan, Jim, Micah, Ryan, Joe, and Sarah. And we had some lovely uh, voicemails, which we'll get to in a minute, I think. Uh, so, what's been going on in the world, Jeff? Like, it's been kind of a ho-hum, boring kind of nothing week, oh, right? Oh, no, nothing's happening. Just that um, we had the 103rd uh, Supreme Court Justice installed last night. Um, and the Senate is the Senate is on vacation until after the election. So, uh, no movement on the next phase of the CARES Act for COVID relief. So, Americans, you're on your own. Yeah, and you know, of course, the, the election is less than a week away. So, when we record these episodes... Um, we have to edit it and, you know, get Mr. Grace's approval and all of this kind of stuff. So <laughs> uh, it's like a three, four turnaround, day turnaround. So by the time this gets out there, it'll be maybe a couple days away from the election. So uh, what do we say to the unanimous Jeff about elections? We tell them to, um, if you still can, if you can early vote, go out and do it. Um, a lot of states are starting to crack down about not being able to count ballots after election night. Yeah. Uh, the Supreme Court just ruled today about um, that in Wisconsin. Um, so, and, and we know that there's also uh, rumors in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania of yeah. something similar happening soon. 
So if you can early vote, please go out and do it. If you're voting by mail, if you could drop off your ballot, please do that. Uh, if you do have to mail it as a last resort, make sure that you've got the correct postage on it. Consider, even if you don't need postage, add a stamp, which will make it be sent first class and get there quicker. Um, while you're at it, um, wash your hands after you fill out your ballot, <laughs> wear a mask to the polling place, and Black, Black Lives, Lives Matter, Matter, people. Totally. Um, I will say, to back up what Mr. Jeffrey has said, or Mr. Jeff, I think, <laughs> I um, Yeah, so... If you have your ballot and you are going to, you know, vote and fill it out how you want for Biden-Harris, of course, and all the Democrats, um, and you mail it, you think that that will be counted. But what um, Donald Trump and his ilk are doing are going to different states' Supreme Courts and challenging things and, you know, voter suppression is another word for it, to not count any ballots received after, like, 7 o'clock on the evening of November 3rd. Well, what if you live you know, two or three days away from where they all go and you mail it. Um, as an American, I would think that that would be your right to have your vote actually cast, but that's not the country that we live in at the moment. So, you know, like, like Jeff was saying, um, it's so much more, more secure and guaranteed to go vote in person, early vote if you can, and of course make sure you're safe with COVID. But um, it's crazy out there and we're almost through the end of it. So maybe by the next time we record an episode... We will know, maybe, <laughs> who won. We, we, we might, yeah, we might not even know Wednesday morning who's won or yeah. Tuesday night. So Yeah, yeah. Crazy. Anyway, uh, we heard, um, we asked the, you, the unanimous, to send us some voicemails about your experience voting. And we heard from a couple of our super fans, Michelle and Kimberly and Kyle. So uh, we're going to play you a couple of clips of uh, their voicemails to us. Hey guys, this is Michelle from California, and I definitely voted for Biden-Harris, so thank you both. You've all done very well, and I am unanimous in that. Hi, it's Kimberly from Houston again. Just wanted to let you know that uh, Harris County reached a million voters yesterday, which is 15% of the voters in the entire state of Texas. Uh, keep up the good work. Keep encouraging people to vote. Let's turn Texas blue. I hear Florida may actually turn blue. Uh, we got to get this idiot out of office. Talk to y'all later. Bye. Hello, uh, this is Kyle. I early voted in Memphis, Tennessee last week. While standing in line for half an hour, Rick played havoc with my pussy. It was well worth it to get the stubborn orange stain out of the White House. You've all done very well. Michelle, Kimberly, and Kyle, um, thanks so much for the voicemails. And I, will, I won't say who, but one of those three people ad advised me that um, they had been drinking wine. So whoever that is, <laughs> that's your guess. You've all done very You've all well. done very well. <laughs> yeah. So um, giant, huge episode. Uh, what are we looking at, Jeff? Take us back in time. All right. So as Mr. Brandon said, we we're talking about The Old Order Changes, Series 5, Episode 4, which originally premiered on March 18th, 1977. And that week in the news, uh, the United States lifted a ban on travel by U.S. citizens to the countries of Cambodia, Cuba, North Korea and Vietnam. Uh, restrictions to North Korea and Cuba were put back in place as of summer 2017. I wonder what happened then. Hmm. Um, Roman Polanski, the filmmaker, was arrested 
on um, accusations of um, child molestation. Uh, he was actually found guilty and he fled and has been a fugitive in France ever since to avoid extradition to the U.S. I wonder Ooh. if that will happen in the future for some someone, unnamed person. Someone fleeing the country to avoid extradition? Yeah, it's an interesting concept. Know. Who knows? Yeah. Um, and Anita Bryant, uh, who was a, a, um, a, a Christian uh, singer, uh, musical artist, helped found uh, Save Our Children, uh, which was a nonprofit that um, was in response to a December 1976 anti-discrimination bill in Miami that had been passed, which she claimed threatened her right to teach her children biblical morality. Um, she was also a spoke- spokesperson for um, Orange Juice at that time, and this led to a huge, huge boycott of Orange Juice, um, in the country, um, because of her, um, discriminatory beliefs, um, against, uh, the LGBT people. Yeah. And this has happened time and time again, you know, I mean, 1976, that was, you know, quite a long time ago now. Um, but like, like Jeff said, the people of Miami, they were being proactive and they said, we have, you know, at that time, gay men, that's what they would have said, not LGBT, um, yeah. But, you know, they, we have gay men, we should protect them. They should have rights, and we're going to pass a local ordinance and a local law for our city, and we're going to protect the gay people, the gay men, of course. Um, and Anita Bryant in 1976, which at the time was kind of a novel thing, saying, oh, my God, the gays are going to, you know, t- take our children away because they can't make children themselves. They're going to recruit. They're going to become teachers, and they're oh going to recruit. Oh, my God, yes, exactly. Yeah. So if you've seen the movie Milk with uh, Sean Penn, um, as you know, Harvey Milk, the uh, openly gay uh, city supervisor of San Francisco who was brutally murdered, um, that movie kind of centers around um, Harvey Milk's campaign against Harvey, uh, against uh, Anita Bryant. And um, it was Florida Orange Juice. So if you were in the, a gay man in a gay bar in 1976, 1977, uh, and you ordered a mimosa, um, I think they would refuse to sell it to you because it used Florida orange juice. So it became quite the political thing. So sadly, yeah. I think, you know, that type of strategy has never gone away. And mm-hmm. uh, we'll see if it has a, a resurgence. Hopefully not. But um, times are a changing, you know. But, you know, that's why it's important for you all to vote. Yep. So there you go. All right. So I vote that we talk about this great episode. <laughs> Nicely done, Mr. Jeff. That's Thank good. You. So Thank how you. do we how do we enter this show? What's going on? So the opening credits are a review coming out of the ladies' fitting room. You know, usually we're straight on camera, you know, to seeing the lips, but we get the view from the ladies' fitting room side, and there's a circular clothing rack in the shot. And I think this is the first time that we've ever seen any kind of a clothing rack where the customers can help themselves. You know, that's a good, I've never, yeah, I never thought about that, but you're right. There's no place where like I can walk up and pick a shirt because it's, you have to ask for it. So that's kind of a funny Everything thing. is behind the counter, right. Huh. And so, you know, it makes a little bit more sense later in the episodes where they've got, you know, they're, they're trying the American approach to selling. But in the beginning when they haven't established that yet, it's a little weird that the rack is there. <laughs> um, but anyway. Yeah. Eagle eye um, Jeff Mr. over here. Mr. Lucas and Mr. Humphreys are having a chat, and Mr. Lucas is smoking on the floor. Like, he's behind the counter having a cigarette. It's like, the bell is already gone. And it's just really weird to, like, think about 
a shop employee smoking during the day. Well, it's weird to think about like people in a shop smoking at all, you know, like Indoors, walking around. Right? Weird. Yeah. I mean, he's obviously not supposed to because Mr. Uh, Captain Peacock tells him off for it, but uh, just, you know, kind of weird to see that. So something that I, I when I watched the episode tonight, I, I reminded myself of something. If in the episode, um, it's kind of a cute joke. So Mr. Lucas is smoking and he seems to always be smoking, which kind of gives rise to that idea that he's like a naughty schoolboy. You know, they're always smoking behind the yep. the school, you know. So um, he's smoking and then Mr. And Mr. Humphrey says, cool it. Here comes here comes Captain Peacock, do something with your fag, referring to the cigarette, which is the British term for cigarette. Um, I hope I'm not, we were not flagged for something because I just said that. <laughs> I don't know. Um, are you being served podcasts as a hate speech podcast? No, it's not. Uh, anyway, um, so he has all the smoke in his mouth and he's like, what do I do with it? So he like, French kisses the dummy <laughs> and, and puts the smoke inside the dummy, which is a cute little clever thing. And then, you know, he's, you know, talking and then all of a sudden, um, as Captain Peacock's there, smoke bellows out of the ears of the, of the dummy, which is cute. But it's, it reminds the, the smoke that came out of it reminded me of a toy that I had. And I was curious if you or anyone else remembers it. When you were a kid, did you have a toy train that would, was it no? It was a toy train. I also had a robot, which is kind of funny because it reminds me of the one from A Change Is As Good As A Rest, you know, um, right. the toy episode. But you put something called household oil, and I think it was something that you kept around the house in case you had like a squeaky hinge on a door. And it was oh, okay, always in a metal container. Is almost like the oil yep. can from oil can, oil right. can you know, from from um, Wizard of Oz. And you put the oil in the top, and somehow it burned the oil inside this toy to make smoke. And I wonder if that's like, do they still have those things, or am I totally aging myself by saying I remember this? I have I had no idea that that's how kids' toys would produce like smoke or vapor. I always thought it was like water vapor like concentrated but but oh that totally makes sense it would be like but so the the short answer is no i did not have that toy growing up (laughs) it was probably like you know maybe every other state was like no this is very bad for children they're breathing in oil vapor we're going to ban it and where i'm from they're like it's fine it doesn't it's fine they're having fun let let them enjoy themselves (laughs) i don't know so, Mr. Humphreys has been to the doctor because he's been under a great deal of strain or stress lately. Oh, dear. And he said, you know, the doctor said two out of ten people are just like you, which is a great little, like, veiled gay joke. <laughs> um, so, yeah. the, the, the popular, you know, saying is about 10%, right? That's what people have been saying for quite some time. Oh, you about, mean the population that's gay, you mean? Uh, that's gay. But in the U.S., the latest poll in... Um, about three or four years ago, was that only about 5% or so uh, was LGBT. Uh, There haven't been any federal studies since 2017, and I wonder why that is. What could have happened in 2017 where they'd no longer be interested in asking questions like this? Fancy that. I think all since we were 10 and we went down to 4.5, I wonder if if they all moved to Mykonos or something. I don't know. Well, I don't think it would ever... I don't think it ever really was 10. I think that was just a gross over-exaggeration or rounding in terms of um, by the LGBT, you know, community in order to kind of give give an idea that we are a large portion of society. 
Now that you said that, that reminds me, um, I think the 10% figure comes from um, the Kenzie studies. Uh, was oh. it in the late 50s where in the 50s, they yeah. had, um, I think his name was Dr. Alfred Kenzie, K-I-N-S-E-Y, yep. who did yep. like the first study of, of gay men. And it wasn't like, so we can get rid of them. It was like, you know, okay, these are people, we're going to study them. And I think he was the first one to say one out of ten men. And I think his his thing was, we will take a hundred men and show them, like, essentially porn of some kind. And some would have two men, some would have a man and a woman, and they had some sort of, like, detector on their willy. I don't know. <laughs> um, and it would detect if there was, like, movement. I'll just say that. <laughs> Tumescence. Yes, <laughs> to uh, to see if anyone you know had some reaction, and I think he was like ten. So I mean, but does that make someone gay? I mean, it's it's a whole thing. I think I you know as as you're saying that that sounds right. I feel like he found out that ten percent of the population was not a Kinsey one. Maybe they just liked having somewhere between a two and a six on the Kinsey. Maybe scale. they just liked having recording devices attached to their <laughs> to their special willies. places. I don't know. <laughs> Oh Lord! Um, but so that four that four and a half five percent number is the average in the United States, and obviously there are some cities where this is much larger. In San Francisco, it's about fifteen percent of the population are straight people. Plus. Is what you're saying? <laughs> is that what you mean? That's what I assume. Okay. So Captain Peacock is in a foul mood today. He had gone to his usual store. Uh, to get his carnation, and they didn't have one, so they offered him a dahlia instead. Well, that would ruin my day too, Jeff. I mean, my I God. I know, right? Yeah, so he had to send <laughs> Mr. Harmon down to the Cozy Posy shop to see if they had any <laughs> The Cozy Posy. That's a perfect name for a flower shop. Miss <laughs> um, Brahms comes in late, and she's hiding under an umbrella. Um, and uh, Captain Peacock tells her off before she can tell her excuse. She's trying to um, she's trying to make her excuse to Mrs. Slocum, who isn't really that interested. But she, as she gets undressed, she, she takes her overcoat off. She goes, "I can see you're wearing that padded bra again. <laughs> I told you about that. It's very inflammatory for the men." <laughs> inflammatory. I love that. Right. Uh. So it turns out that her excuse is that she had burned her blouse ironing it, and she had to stop it somewhere else to buy one before her shift. Mrs. Slocum was like, well, why didn't you get one here? She goes, well, I'm not buying this rubbish. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, I didn't notice it until I just watched it today. Um, but she said something about my nylon shirt. And when I was in high school, so that was like, I don't know, 1990, whatever. Back then, the 70s were super all the rage. If you saw photos yep. of like Madonna or whatever, they she was just decked out in 70s disco vibes and and everything and i found a vintage shop in arkansas that sold vintage disco 70s shirts and i was i thought it was the coolest thing ever and they were from the 70s they were like 30 years old and um they were literally all nylon and it felt like silk but i cannot imagine like wearing those all the time and having to iron them because if you can think about like I don't know. It's like a like a parachute. Like, how would you iron a parachute that's all nylon, and not just have your shirts literally melt to your iron? Yeah, God. Well, I think that's where household steam steamers started to become popular with all that nylon and polyester. The seventies were a strange decade. Yep. 
So Mrs. Slocum once again says that she is responsible for choosing the merchandise here and it's top quality. So super fan <laughs> Which Jeff we know y, is a lie. I, hope, <laughs> I hope you're paying attention because you know some days she is and some days she is not responsible, right? Ooh, deep cut. Deep so cut. Um, Ms. Brahms uh, counters that, well, no, it all comes from Hong Kong and you sell your own labels in, right? So they're getting into it. They're, they're, they're not, you know, getting along today. And Miss, uh, Mrs. Slocum noticed that Ms. Brahms has six rows of frills on her blouse. And this is one of my favorite <laughs> uh, visual gags and just back and forth yep, about the entire yep, yep, yep. series, right? Miss um, Ross has been working here for four years, and by now she should know that juniors are not permitted more frills than seniors. So we get that hierarchy going on. <laughs> Which is the stupidest thing ever. I love it. And Mrs. Slocum says, well, until I was 30, I wasn't allowed any frills at all. <laughs> and so the audience laughs because they can hear that there's a little bit of a pun going yeah. on. Where Mrs. Slocum, uh, Mrs. Ms. Brahms comes back and says, "Well, after thirty, it was too late for her to have any thrills." Yeah, and it's funny because, like, I don't know, maybe this is a uniquely British thing here, but having one word and knowing the audience assumes the joke that it's actually referring to another word. I don't think I could think of any other example where that has happened. Even in the show, they might might make a hint of it, but like. Frills with an F or T, thrills with a T, two completely different words. And I remember being a kid, like, just not really getting that joke. And I don't know, maybe because we've been spending so much time, like, dig, di- um, bleh, deep diving into the episodes, um, it seems like a little bit of a stretch, but maybe that's just me. Well, I, well, it's pretty common in in the East London accent to substitute the TH sound with an F. Like if you think about how they count one, two, three. Oh uh, yeah. You know? Okay. Um, no, yeah, that's so good point. That's where she gets it. Right. So Mrs. Slocum makes Miss Brahms cut off four rows of frills. <laughs> um, so Dean from Australia, if you're listening, this is the scene that you should recreate. If you are ever on uh, a, a franchise of RuPaul's Drag Race as Frock Hudson. Oh my god! Cosplaying, gosh, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> if, if, if so, if you're a new listener, and we do have some new some new listeners, and we have to teach them the ways of the show. So new listeners, hello. Um, <laughs> collectively, the listenership of the podcast are called the unanimous. So you are a member of the unanimous. Welcome aboard. And um, we have a mutual friend that we know from the web um, named. Dean Akureri, who has an alter ego named Frock Hudson, who lives in Melbourne, Australia, next to uh, uh, um, Fountain Lakes. Very nice, very nice indeed, it's unusual. <laughs> it's nice, it's different, it's, it's unusual. Unique, yeah. um, so he was one of our guest hosts ages ago, and uh, if you go to our podcast list, you'll see his episode, and I don't remember the number of it, but he, that was a really fun episode because you got the Australian angle about Mr. Humphreys and what the show meant in Australia. And uh, we had two other guest hosts as well, which were really cool too. That well, that was our namesake episode. That was the one where we, um, with the wedding, ten thirty, Harry. Oh my gosh, yes. Um, so that is um, no sale. That's what that one is. Took me a while to get there. Good one. Good one. Yeah. So uh, season four, episode one. If you want to go back and listen, new listeners. So Captain Peacock yells at Mrs. Slocum for not following the correct procedure for getting his attention because she wants to go report um, uh, what Miss Brahms has said. 
So this sets the stage for all the hierarchy and the protocol that is going to be undone when we go into the American order. I think I think that scene is one of the best scenes in the show. And the the the, the way that that Frank Thornton as Captain Peacock is completely embodying his rigid uh, backbone made of steel, um, his little bowler hat that's on probably a little bit too tight, along with his collar. Um, he is so being that upper crust. Um, upper crust. That is the perfect word yeah, to describe. Upper crust, yeah. upper middle management, um, someone who is aspiring to be more than he really is. And the idea, that British sense of my, the impression I give to other people is of paramount importance to my life, which, as yep. we're kind of contrasting later in the episode, doesn't really jive with the American's sensibility in a way. Um, the way he says, Mrs. Slocum, to, to get my attention, I command you to go back to your counter, uh, raise your hand. If I happen to look in your direction, I will acknowledge you. Then you ask if I am free, and if I am, like he gives this whole bullshit, like instruction manual on standard operating procedure. Oh my, right? and it's so condescending. And he does it with such ind- indignation for Mrs. Slocum. And then it just pisses her off. Yeah. So she she goes back to the counter and waves her hand around like she's landing a plane. <laughs> yes. <right? laughs> yes, like landing a plane. That's perfect. <laughs> and out of spite, he ignores her for a oh. second and, pre- and pretends to adjust the tie on the center display unit. Which is just such an asshole. He was just an asshole right. on this ep- that scene. And, oh she, my God. and she knows it. And she knows it. he's ignoring her <laughs> hair on purpose. Because they're all, in the, they're all ants in a little ant farm. Their whole world means nothing. But inside that <laughs> ant farm, man, it's the and most they're important. they're within five feet of each other, right? <laughs> yeah. So she continues <laughs> to circle. And he finally looks in her direction and nods. <laughs> yeah. Captain Peacock, are you free? And then he calls her over with one finger. He beckons. <laughs> he beckons. <laughs> you wanted to say something, Mr. Slocum? Yes. I'm going to see Mr. Rumbold, so get stuffed. <laughs> Which is cute, because like, that is the height of in- insults in-, in this episode. I don't know. Yeah. It is. No, it- it's the height of British insults. It's, it's basically British for go fuck yourself, is, is what it means. I know so. I always picture like, a stuffed mounted deer <laughs> or something, but... Okay, there Almost. we go. Almost. <laughs> huh? yeah, okay. So, um, Slocum goes in to plead her case to Rumbold, but of course he gets it all backwards, and so Miss Brahms and Captain Peacock are rolling their eyes throughout the entire thing. They come out, and then Peacock goes in on Lucas. He, get, he goes through his notes. He's been keeping notes on his notepad mm, yeah. for an entire week on everything he's done. Going all the way back to last Wednesday, where he had his hands in his pockets twice, there was no handkerchief in his top pocket, and he had hairs on his collar. Like, the most picayune details that he's keeping notes on, like he's holding a grudge for. I love I love how this is really great Trevor Bannister acting, and the writing of this episode. I, sometimes Mr. Lucas' character, I kind of like, okay, you're a misogynist, you love girls, I get it. Okay, I don't know. I'm more in for Mr. Humphreys and Mrs. Slocum because those those characters seem unique. I love so how Mr. <laughs> Mr. Lucas um, is said. Oh, you had your Mr. Captain Peacock says. Captain Peacock says you had your hands in your pockets last week, and then earlier this week you didn't have your handkerchief. And then he says, Ah, yes, my hands are in my pockets looking for the handkerchief. <laughs> <laughs> and then he says, What was the next thing? 
Oh, uh, you had uh, hairs on your shirt. And he's like, that's because I was so worried about the two other reprimands from before. <laughs> it's so cute. And he does that a lot in the show. So I'm at like a, a lovely balance of I'm over him, but I think he's great as well because of the writing. Yeah. No, I get it. <laughs> then Peacock goes in on Humphreys. Oh, don't talk to me about last Thursday. Right? <laughs> and then Mr. Mr. Captain Peacock's like, okay, how about Friday? <laughs> he just drops it. <laughs> he just drops it, right? <laughs> Mr. Humphreys is saying that he has, he's been to the doctor recently because he's under a lot of strain and it's causing a lot of wrinkles on his face and he's taking this new treatment. And Captain Peacock gets, gets frustrated with him and says, Will customers trust an honest prune rather than someone desperately trying to look like Donnie Ros- Osmond? <laughs> oh my God. Which I think is the first modern popular culture reference we've had on the entire show. Because all of their references have been people in the 50s, the 1950s and earlier. No, that's a good point. Donnie Osmond, um, you know, that's even before our time, I think. So Donnie, yeah. Donnie and Marie Osmond were like this this brother and sister pop, like family pop, I would say, like kind of genre. Yeah. Um, they're probably in their 60s now, which probably makes some people feel really old. Um, but he was sort of like a fresh-faced, baby-faced, like yep. very family-friendly very um, wholesome, yeah. uh, definitely an alternative to David Cassidy and the Partridge Family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, who were, were still very wholesome, but like <laughs> they were a little bit more like mod and with it, just like slightly. Yeah, like the Osmonds had like, they would give, con- well maybe later in life, but they would give concerts in like Branson, Missouri. So that kind of yeah. tells you a lot, I think. But what I love about the scene with Mr. Humphreys, uh, as as Mr. Lucas walks back to the gentleman's counter after being lambashed by Captain Peacock, he's like, I can't believe what just happened. And now he wants to see you. And then Mr. Humphreys is filing he na- his nails and he's like, I'd like to see him try it. And he slams his nail file down on the glass. And then he <laughs> marches right over there and is like, you know, bring it on. He's like, he's going to take this guy down. And then that's why he's like, oh, don't talk to me about Thursday. <laughs> it's so cute. And when he finishes, Mr. Lucas has picked up the nail file and is filing <laughs> his nails. It's great, right? They're so cute. So Mr. Harmon is finally back from the Cozy Posy shop and delivering Peacock's carnation. And they ran out of executive red, so he had to choose pink instead, right? So Peacock's a little upset about that. Um, Peacock gathers everyone around to discuss the decline in efficiency and appearance. But Mr. Rumbold comes out and beats him to it. And remarks that Captain Peacock is wearing a pink carnation, which is a prime <laughs> example of this lax ad- attitude and hooliganism. Who? Yes, because Captain Peacock is a hooligan for wearing, for wearing not a, red. a different colored flower. Right? How <laughs> how strict and how ridiculous is the structure of this department store? Right? Yeah. So Mr. Rumble is saying, well, for 50 years, young Mr. Grace has shown us the way. He's always elegantly attired, polite, and smiling. And meanwhile, ding, guess who shows up just in time? The nurse wheels him in. He's wearing a white suit, a cowboy, cowboy boots, and a 10-gallon hat. <laughs> like, if you said to somebody in Europe in the 1970s, draw a picture of an American, yeah. this is what they would do. Like, it's a caricature. They right? would probably, like, picture, like, they would probably start singing the Bonanza theme song or something. Right. Um, turns out that young Mr. Grace had just been on a trip to the U.S. Um, and wants to try some of their approaches. He'll spill the load down to your bosses and they'll fill you guys right in. 
you've all done very swell. Wagons roll. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, there was a big in the um, in the 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 50s, 60s and early 70s. A big part of American television was what was called what was referred to as um, oh, I'm forgetting what spaghetti the, westerns. The, the term was not spaghetti westerns, but it was really like this rural. Uh, there was an emphasis on rural life, right? You had um, Angie Griffith and Mayberry, and you had Hee Haw, and you had Gunsmoke and Bonanza and the Waltons, right? And a lot of that was exported to um, to other English-speaking countries for entertainment. And so they probably got a lot of um, viewpoint about what American life was like based on this kind of rural uh, entertainment. Well, of course, a country is also often remembered for the things that make it unique. And, you know, in Europe, you don't see a lot of 10-gallon hats and cowboys, you know. No, no, you don't, you don't. <laughs> no, but um, I was just curious, like, with this, I wondered, because I, you know, you think of later uh, seasons of the show, they reference Dallas a lot. And I thought, I wonder if this is Dallas, but Dallas, like, would come on the air in the U.S., like, maybe six or eight months after this show aired. But, you know, they're just it just goes to show that, like, in the United Kingdom, even today, like, you picture cowboys and, like, horses and yep. the open, open plains and, and cowboy hats and stuff. Because, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure there's some of that in South America and Canada, uh, in Mexico for that matter. But um, it's, it's de- because, you know, we're, the world knows America through its TV, through our TV and, TV and movies. So that's kind of what we look like. British listeners, you know, phone in and tell us what your image of Americans were based on popular culture when you were growing up. Between two gays who have podcasts and talk about 50-year-old UK TV shows, that's that's (laughs) one way to look at it. Um, But yeah, so it's interesting because I think there's going to be a later reference to Kojak uh, by Mr. Lucas, which is another American thing. Um, Million Dollar Man. So this is a very American TV. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So there you go. I didn't. I didn't pick up on those two connections. Good. Point. And another thing, the fact that Mister Young, Mister Grace, um, refers to the word bosses because, like, that is seen as a yep. very American word, American term, which yeah. is actually as, as like manager, supervisor, or yeah, yeah. And it's interesting. So there's a New York City uh, layer to that. So as the um, the Dutch West, is it the Dutch East India Company? Yep. came over from Holland to uh, what was called New Amsterdam, which would later become New York City, um, they had, you know, they spoke Dutch. They didn't speak English or, or French or, or Spanish or anything, like all the other little colonies in the New World. Or Algonquin. Or Algonquin, yes, thinking the native languages, the Algonquin language and all of that. Um, so they had these different terms for things. And then when the English came over and they said, oh, nice little, nice little colony you have here, we'll take that, thank you. And then it became New York. Um, some of the old Dutch words for different things stuck around. And the word yep. for boss came from those very early settlers in like the 1670s in what is today New York City. So the word boss is a, one of the most New York words ever. And if you think about New York culture, it's a very appropriate word too. Another word is cookie. Came from that period interesting ah. and stoop is the um the word for stoop st- is a very new york for stairs word. that's what the, you know yeah. you have a stoop so if you're from holland i don't know if we have any dutch listeners but if you do that'd be hello <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, why don't we head on down to the canteen for a tea break? Ooh, I think I might have my, my one of those lovely Dutch uh, caramel waffles for my tea. Wouldn't that be lovely? Stroopwafel? Oh, yum. That's good. No, that's German. Uh, anyhow, that's I'll learn how to say that is good in Dutch. <laughs> we'll be right back after a tea break. Hello, Unanimous. This is Mr. Brandon. And this is Mr. Jeff. Did you wake up this morning and think, how could I support my favorite podcast while also letting the world know that I'm a proud member of the Unanimous? Does your morning coffee vessel leave you feeling neither one way nor the other? Perhaps your smartphone cover fails to confirm your charm, personality, vitality, and youth. Worry no more. Visit our That Does Suit Madam online bargain basement shop. They've just come in. You could buy your very own That Does Suit Madam official tote bag. A handbag? Or an official podcast sofa pillow. Perfect for hiding your Paddington bear. We sell a fashionable face mask and a celebrated coffee cup. And of course, t-shirts. But don't worry, you'll find the sleeves right up with wear. Support your favorite podcast with some That Does Suit Madam merch. All at imfree.threadless.com imfree.threadless.com And you've all done very well. And we're back from our break, uh, and that Poloni who runs the canteen, uh, she she's not Bona at all. Um, Brandon, what did you Manjari? Well, you know, I, I, I decided to blag over a little bit of uh, Bijou Rosie Lee. So there you go. So unanimous, if you haven't figured it out by now, we are in our new segment where we talk about English things we love, and this segment is called... I am unanimous in this. And today we're going to be talking about Polari. What's that, Jeff? Well, Polari is a secret language or an argo that originally came out, came about in the um, 16th century in England, which was spoken among people in the underworld, people who were criminals in order to avoid the authorities understanding them. It eventually merged with other um, with other cultural dialects, uh, such as the cant, which was spoken by um, circus folk and travelers, um, as well as Cockney rhyming slang to form this language called Polari, which was spoken by most of the underclasses in England in the early 20th century, but really became popular within the LGBT community uh, mid-century as um, homosexuality was illegal and uh, started to become more and more persecuted uh, as the century went on until 1967 when it was decriminalized. Yeah, I think Polari is such an interesting little snippet of the world um there's so many intersections uh language um kind of the the lgbt community uh i think it speaks so much about the the culture of our community back then uh the persecution that they had to figure out a way to exist among um it was so neat and it was really cool that um if you think of London as kind of like, you know, a very metropolitan world, there's a lot of Europeans there, a lot of people from different parts of the world. Um, it's been around forever, too. So in a couple of episodes, we've talked about Punch and Judy. And if you're a fan of already being served, you know that there's a whole episode. I think it's called The, the Punch and Judy. The sausages. <laughs> the sausages. Yes, exactly. Um, we've not lost our mind. That's just a quote from the show. So <laughs> I, wasn't Punch and Judy... Um, 
contemporaries of William Shakespeare, like it's like 17th century stuff, right? So it's even well, way you're back, you're off by about 200 years, but yeah, in England that's of- nothing, in Britain that's that's just like a decade <laughs> in the states. But um, anyway, so like six, like 17th century, uh, 1600s at least I know, um, they were using Polari. So Punch and Judy is this very very famous. Um, kind of like classical puppetry that they have in England and the Britain that is a, a punch puppet and Judy puppet and they kind of like hide each other and steal sausages and stuff. It doesn't really matter, but the point is part of the very, um, the canon of their, of their, of their speech includes Polari. So yeah. it, this, it's this weird, cool secret language that's kind of wrapped up in British culture. And then it's actually featured in this episode. So the idea of, Discussing Polari on this episode just made sense. Yeah. So Polari came about um, as a mixture. There's a lot of influence from other languages, not only Romance languages like um, Italian and French, yeah. but it also borrowed words from Yiddish and from Rumney, uh, as well as taking standard English words and just spelling them backwards. Right. Um, it's cool if you think about, you know, we've talked a lot about on the show uh, Cockney rhyming slang. Yep. So in the east of London, you might want to communicate something to your east of London friend in a way that the police officer or the, the, the constable or whatever wouldn't be able to know what you're saying. So if, if, if Jeff and I were bandits and we, I hid the loot under the stairs and I was caught and I wanted to tell Jeff, oh, I hid it under the stairs, go and get it before we get arrested, I can say, hey, Jeff, it's under the apples and pears. Right. And then Jeff would know, oh, it's under the stairs. But the police officer would be like, why is this guy talking about his lunch? I don't understand this guy. He's from the east of London. He's a weirdo. (laughs) So so it's kind of it speaks to like the the persecution of people, people of the um, the lower socioeconomic run is what we'd say today. Um, And of course, gay men were definitely part of that. And, you know, as as Jeff mentioned, it was illegal to be gay um, until 1967, which was two years before it was in the United States, so at least they had two years on us. Yeah, and Polari began to fall out of favor, not only because um, uh, because homosexuality had become decriminalized, but the Polari language had really entered the mainstream. You know, it was shown on television and heard on radio, and so mainstream people began to understand the words and incorporate some of the language into their speech as well. So there was no longer this need or ability to really hide or masquerade what you were saying in front of other people, right? I think, you know, even now today in American culture, there are some words that have come over that we all understand. Like Butch and Camp originally came from Polari, and they are pretty well known in mainstream American uh, English. But another word that is a little bit more popular that's started within the gay community um, that has grown a little bit is the verb zhuzh, meaning to <laughs> embellish or to, you know, uh, to, to elaborately decorate. Um, Carson Kressley on the original Queer Eye kind of made it popular with that, with that word. And he kind of brought it into, um, into popular view. Yeah. And, you know, um, a lot of the, the words that like in the LGBT community these days can really be directly traced to RuPaul and RuPaul's Drag Race. You know, because that's – RuPaul as a person 
really takes words and kind of owns them and takes things and kind of little bits and pieces and blends them together. But a lot of the words that, that RuPaul uses are from Polari. So it's not him like and his writing staff sitting around. Making his, that up, right. Yeah, like what word can we come up with? They're just taking stuff from Polari. So like the word zhuzh, um, camp, butch, um, gosh, I'm trying to think, yas. Like what, what he also does is take a lot of words from like the African-American community, so of which he's a member. So it's really cool, and, and that's kind of what Polari is. It's a mix mash of Romani, of Italian, Yiddish, um, and like even people in the theater world would yep. use Polari, which is interesting, you know? Yeah. So I'm thinking as in the scene where Captain Peacock uses, uses um, Polari in this episode... I bet you Frank Thornton probably knew um, Pilar. I'm sure everyone on that cast probably did. He might have. He might have known. Yeah, a couple of words there. So our sponsors' message at the beginning of this episode: um, Dolly Clobber for Bijou Measures uh, literally means uh, pretty clothes for little money. So I think there was a great way for Grace Brothers to uh, be part of the movement in the '70s and advertise like that with us. <laughs> yes, but well done, Grace Brothers. Um, I'll say that. Um, so it was interesting. So there's this basic, if you picture a ma- like this, the secret language, which isn't a language, it's more like verbs that you can kind of change so that people outside. The it's group- a language game is what it is. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's not that far off from pig Latin or abadaba or gibberish or any of those kind of childhood language games that yeah. many of us learned as kids. But what's cool about it is, it has to be taught, and, and um, there's a lot of stuff online about it. It's called an argo, which is words, it, not a language, but like just underneath a language that is purposely done so that other people outside of your community will not understand you. So you mentioned why Polari isn't around these days. There's definitely a movement, and I think it's really cool. I'm going to kind of look into this myself off the podcast. Um, but as, as Jeff mentioned, there's... At one point in the 60s, it was sort of like outed, <laughs> which is, you know, maybe that term itself is Polari. I don't know. But um, there was a TV show in that the BBC put on in the late 60s, and it was called Round the Horn. So if you can imagine the secret language from like centuries that straight people didn't really understand. So it was like this little secret. Um, and for some reason... You know, again, we mentioned the theater people kind of knew Polari, and it was just part of the scene. You just kind of picked it up. And it was kind of a London thing. I mean, they already have this this tradition of, of Cockney rhyming slang, and it's just kind of a cute thing that they kind of probably did already a lot. So Polari, sure, add it to the pile. And at least one of the two people who were playing this um, <laughs> this gay couple was Kenneth Williams, who was not really openly gay, but very campy. <laughs> and it was sort of... Anyway, that's a whole other discussion. Um, maybe for next week. But anyhow, so what this what this couple did on this this comedy show, it explained what Polari was to, to the unwashed like, masses. To the unwashed, well, the very lovely washed uh, straight mas- <laughs> masses. So it was sort of like, okay, well, there goes our lovely unique thing. And there's a whole other idea of heteronormity, normity as um, as gay couples wanted to, or just gay people wanted to adopt the social graces of the majority, they kind of made their lives more and more heterosexual 
which is like if we had our own language, we're not going to use it because we very, want to be very, accepted. Very machine, very machinist, very heteronormative. Right. Try and blend in rather than stand out. Right. So and, yeah. the use of Polari literally separates you from other people. Yeah. And um, I'll post something on the Facebook page. There's a really good little snippet of a little uh, short movie showing two gay men sitting on a park bench in a park wearing like period clothes from the 50s having a whole conversation in Polari as it would have been if because in the 50s you couldn't be gay you couldn't talk about the gay bar you went to so they had to use secret code words so it's fascinating to see how they just blend this seamlessly together and as someone who doesn't know it you have no freaking idea what they're talking about well, I think the great thing about the, 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 the short film you're talking about is you see how the two characters aren't really sure um, if, the other, if the other character is gay or not. So they're speaking standard English and throwing in little words here and there of Polari. Which is kind of can, like, are you? I am. Right, until yeah. they can firmly establish that they can both fluently speak Polari and then they, you see them get comfortable with each other. Yeah. Right. And then, and then it turns out that they know each other. They have mutual friends in common. And they end up <laughs> gossip. The, the, most of the scenes is them gossiping about uh, the, their mutual friends. Do you want to try to do some Polari? Uh, sure. Let's do it. Okay. So I'm going to say a word. There's, so if you go to the Polari on Wikipedia, there's loads of like dictionaries and stuff. Um, I'll say a word and you tell me what you think it might mean. Okay. Okay. You're a linguist. Um, how about the word cats? The word cats. Huh. Memories. So, <laughs> no, that's the wrong one. Um, so the only thing I can think of is like for, as a word for friend, like I'm thinking about jive speak, you know, he's a real cool cat. Trousers. Trousers. Don't know why. Trousers. Just because. Okay. How about Dilly Boy? Dilly Boy. Oh, that sounds like a Nancy boy. It sounds like someone who's a little camp, a little flamboyant. More specific than that, of a professional um, variety. Oh, a rent boy. Yes. So Piccadilly okay. Circus is kind of like oh. the Times Square of London. And Swan and Edgar's. Yeah, Swan and Edgar's, which is a nice throwback. Well done. You get a ding. So um, a lot of male prostitutes would hang out Piccadilly Circus in uh, the 60s. And, you know, Dilly they used boy. to do it in Times okay. Square, too. So Piccadilly, Dilly boy. There you go. Got it. Okay. Uh, You'll get this. What is the word gelt? Ah, well, this is probably one of those words that came from Yiddish. And I think this is one of those words for money. Exactly right. Totally. Nice. Um, right. Some might call me an HP. Uh, <laughs> uh, an HP. <laughs> I don't, I have no idea. This is a tricky one. It's an effeminate gay man. And what it does HP stand for? HP, it's not HP sauce, which is delicious, by the way. HP stands for homie Pallone, which Pallone, I believe, I'm looking at my is, dictionary. Is woman, right? Pallone, woman? Um, you speak a bit or of Italian, feminine? right? Yeah. And homie, I think, is, is man. So a feminine man. Um, we could oh. go on and on. It's like homie insane, okay, all the different it. words. Yeah. Like the word switch means a wig. So I can picture oh. a bunch of like drag queens saying, "Girl, hand me that that switch over there. That's mine." Right. You know. In fact, if you think about Kath and Kim, 
She calls her fake ponytail a switch. That's right. That's right. So this kind of brings all of these weird kind of gay, kind of Anglophile kind of things together for Jeff and I. So we're all excited. (laughs) Why don't we jump back into the episode where we can get to Captain Peacock's usage Ah, and now we'll know what he says. Very and now nice we'll know what he says, yeah. Cool. So where are we? So the scene is set up where they've got the table set up for one of their famous after-work conferences. Oh, they're always so productive, too. Right, where they're going to talk about what does it mean to, you know, the American measures that they're going to put in place. And we get our pussy joke of the week from Mrs. Slocum. Uh, the last time I was home late, a fireman had to climb out of my bedroom window and just risk his life on a narrow ledge trying to grab a hold of my pussy. <laughs> I don't know. Call, I, I, that's, that's Esmeralda's opinion, not in mine necessarily. But, um, new listeners, the, uh, the, the, the flute thing is called Esmeralda. I think they're just a little tired by now, by the fifth season. I don't know. I know that like, it's an easy laugh, but oh, well, uh, I'd rather see her drunk any day. I, I hear what you're saying. Like I think be, because this comes in kind of, kind of comes out of nowhere. And yes, there is a setup that they're being held late by their work conference. But if it's not really organic to the setting, it, it I can I can understand it gets a little tired. But yeah. hope, we still have five more seasons to go. We know that they're chock full of references to little tittles. Um, <laughs> hopefully, you know we won't have gone completely bored with them uh, yes. by now. Uh, Mr. Humphreys wants to get home to watch Yuri Geller, who was a magician who was famous for bending spoons with his mind. Super 70s reference, too. Yuri Geller would have, like, TV specials where he would... To say he's... I think he'd be, like, an illusionist or something, I think is the term he used. But I think he was from Russia. Maybe I'm wrong. I want to say Ukraine, but He's from a place somewhere. He's from somewhere in the former Soviet Union. Somewhere, period. I mean, he existed on <laughs> Earth, so we both agree on that. So that's good. Um, on that, we agree. But he had this thing where, like, he could—he claimed he could bend metal objects with just his mind. And if he didn't know that, the next joke that Mister Humphreys explains wouldn't make any sense, right? And I was concentrating really hard, as you do. And then in my trousers, I felt something move. <laughs> <laughs> And it so I stuck, my I, stuck my, I stuck my hand in my trouser pocket, and wouldn't you know, my keys have doubled over. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Mr. Rumble starts talking about some of the sales techniques in the USA, and it's more about the idea of American informality, that all of the staff are on first-name terms with the management, that there's friendly interstaff relations, and they start calling each other by their first names. And we know some of them already, but we learn that Mr. Rumble's first name is Cuthbert. <laughs> How you doing, Cuss? <laughs> Love it. Um, none of them know Mr. Lucas's first name, uh, to which he reveals it's Dick. Dick. And Mr. Humphreys gets quite a kick out of addressing Mr. Lucas by his first name. <laughs> and they say it about nine times, I think. Yeah. So they say that they want to, you know, they want to change their approach to the customer. You make contact. You don't stroll up and say, "Are oh, you being served?" But rather. Hello, my name is Steven, and this is Dick, and he'll see if he's got something in your size. <laughs> <laughs> Dick jokes. <laughs> and they should start each day by declaring the friendship with each other, you know? So there's this whole thing where they have to practice seeing, uh, shaking hands and saying, I like you. This is you such s- a cute and sweet scene. I love and, it. 
Mrs. Slocum and Miss Brom still haven't quite made up from their fight earlier today. <laughs> and so she's gritting through her teeth, barely choking out the words. I like you, Shirley. And I like when... when it's so cute because uh, Mr. Rumbold has to explain each step one by one. Uh, Miss Brahms, Mrs. Slocum, stand up. And they stand up, you know, not very happy about it. And then he says, smile. And then, like, Mrs. Slocum, you see her smiling. But her the, the corners of her mouth smile. do not go up. They're, like, no. parallel. <laughs> She's showing, like, a tooth. <laughs> yes. I like you, Shirley. I mean, it's just so... It's She's such a good actor. I just love Molly Hang Sugden. on, hang on. She hasn't said it back to me yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, sweet. never mind. The moment's gone, right? And what I think is really cute is when, when Mr. Rumbold does it with... Do you like how I roll my R's? With um, Captain Peacock. He, he is like, I'll give an example. And he stands up and you see them in profile. And he, he shakes his... He reaches his hand out and says, Hello, Stephen. And then when he does, he like does this really cute thing that I always think is so sweet. Um, Nicholas Smith does this thing where he kind of like pulls his pulls his chin back, almost as this very like satisfied like expression. I don't know. And then he says, and, and Captain Picasso says, "Hello, Cuthbert. We're going to be great friends." And then he does it again. He pulls his chin back. It's so cute. If you go watch the episode, it has this extremely like friendly air to it it's really yeah. sweet i think nicholas smith must have been in the nicest guy yeah. it's a sweet scene so next monday the store is decorated with modern clothes pink light there's music playing like it, it looks like the set of laughing basically it, it does it really <laughs> does right and so one by one the characters are coming dressed in their normal attire right so shirley comes in <laughs> chewing gum Wearing a boho cream-colored peasant blouse with gold lame trousers. With, like, wings on her, on her sleeves. With wings, right? And um, not quite thigh-high boots or go-go boots, but pretty tall gold boots she that match been like, the trousers. She could have been Stevie Nicks' body double, basically. Really good d- description. Yeah, Thank totally. you. I'll give myself a ding on that one. Meanwhile, Dick comes in smoking a cigarillo, wearing a denim vest, no shirt a denim painter's cap, jeans, and a safety pin through his left ear. <laughs> so, a question, did, did any straight man ever dress like this at any point in time throughout history? Well, don't look at me. <laughs> um, I, uh, I mean, some of those photos of, like, people's uncles with, like, the short shorts and, like, a tank top, and you're like, you're, gay. you're, you're, you're not gay, you're straight, Uncle Fred? Or, I don't know, like, I don't know, the 70s were... A radical time in fashion. So Mr. Lucas is also wearing a medal that says Jim fixed it for me. And this was a reference to Jimmy Savile, who had a show where he made uh, children's wishes come true. And this is kind of an ish moment in modern times, because in 2012, a year after he died, all of these um, allegations came forth that he abused some of the children who participated in the show. So, uh... yeah, I mean, this whole thing is hard. It's kind of. It's unfortunate that, well, it is it's fortunate that we don't know about this, but it's also unfortunate because so much of British popular culture in the 70s and 80s kind of centers around this really sleazeball ass guy. Yeah. So for the easiest way to describe this, I think, because I, I watch a lot of documentaries on him, just because in the 70s and 80s, like I watch a lot of British TV, he was always brought up and he used to host a lot of like specials on TV and 
he, he was, was well loved. Yeah, he was. I think the easiest way to explain it, it's like Mister Rogers was also. What if Mister Rogers was as beloved as he was, but also did like hosting TV specials and um, like Christmas specials on TV shows where they raised money for poor, sick children in the hospitals, and then Mister Rogers dies. And then a couple of years later, it turns out he was, like, abusing all of the children that he had worked with Ugh. for decades. That's kind of what Jimmy Somerville is. Excuse me, not Jimmy Somerville, that's the singer. Jimmy Save Savile. Sorry, Jimmy Savile. Um, so it's just this horrible black stain. But yeah. Yeah. but a good eagle eye. I was trying to figure out what that, that, what that metal yeah. said. So. Um, the lift girl is also uh, taken to wearing normal clothes. She's got a purple sequin top and some black hot pants. I know, um, like good, good little eye there. It's like they could have not even have her be seen, but nope, they put a hot nope. pants on her. Um, <laughs> Ernest comes out wearing a navy blazer with awning stripes and khakis. Reminds me very much of like what a seaside busker would wear. Oh like, yeah, you know what I mean, like a, like someone like kind of maybe you know late late term vaudeville. No, I see, maybe like thirties vaudeville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, I'm thinking he looks very much like. Um, Oh, what's the guy? The Eaton Man from the next episode. What was his name? Oh, uh, uh, the one from Somerset. Uh, Sir Richard Ryan. Sir Richard Ryan. Oh, arr, yeah. <laughs> um, by the way, I've gotten a compliment on my uh, Eaton accent. Thank you very much, Ms. Julia. Appreciate that. There you go. Um, so <laughs> this, the characters on the show, if you have to think about it, is 1977. If you're 70 years old in the show... You don't have casual dress. This is what you wear on weekends. You're an old yeah. guy from 40 years ago. So when you were in your 20s, it was in the 1920s. So people didn't have t-shirts and shit back then. If yeah. you went out on a date, or like not a date, if you were like uh, on the weekend, um, you wore like a suit. I mean, you didn't wear a tie, or maybe you wore like a bow tie. But like the idea of ca- casual everyday street clothes like Americans, man, um, is a very weird concept. Uh, And you see that in his his outfit. Like, he's going to office in a... He's going to work in a um, laid-back outfit. But it looks like a freaking suit. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, Betty comes in wearing her old uniform. She's, you know, not interested in playing the charade. But she tears it away to reveal a multicolored sequin vest and rainbow tights underneath. Right. <laughs> Which Very well. This, I love this it. does look like what she would wear out at the pub with Mrs. Axelbig. I love that Mr. Rumbold says, but Mrs. Slocum, we want to see that warm and friendly side that you don't often see. And then she says, very well. And then like takes off the Velcro back of her outfit <laughs> and exposes the multicolored rainbow effect of, of, of all of her glory. So good. Claiborne Wilberforce comes in um, to grand applause wearing a neon green lame suit, green high heels, a T-shirt that has I'm free spelled out in glitter, and Elton John sunglasses. I think, I don't know if if in any other episode does (laughs) does the audience clap more forcefully than when he descends those stairs. When the yeah. lift doors open. Because you know, like, each each person coming in, first it's Miss Brahms, then Mr. Lucas, then Mr. Uh, Granger. And you know they're waiting for him. 
And he always right. comes last, right? Except, you know, in this case, it's Captain Peacock. But, man, go and watch that scene. They're, like, pulling their hair out. It's so cool. And he's wearing an almost identical outfit to what Elton John wore four years prior in 1973. And it's like this lame. It's, it's a fabric you don't see anymore. But it's almost like... It's very, very shiny and reflective, yet it's fabric. It's hard to describe. Yeah. And it's neon, iridescent green, looks like a million bucks. If there ever is an Are You Being Served convention, and we have mentioned this a couple times, that would probably be the winning outfit for the costume <laughs> contest. Uh, and finally, we see Captain Peacock, who arrived in formal dress, and so Rumble sent him over to the Way Out Boutique, our sponsor, <laughs> uh, in order to get him kitted out. And he comes back wearing an afro and a dashiki. Uh, this, this style of clothes is typically associated with people of African descent. I thought the cheeky uh, was something you, it's like a cucumber sauce. <laughs> no. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just a little strange in 2000, in 2020 to be seeing him wearing this. Uh, and you know, that, that it was of the time that, uh, there were people who were not black that did wear it, but it seems a little odd to be, you know, with today's eyes to be co-opting that. Well, for me, um, I hear what you're saying. My first blush is that I read that as more 60s. I mean, it felt very yep. like 1968 Summer of Love a decade prior, you know, but. And that would be that would be right on par with uh Grace Brothers to think that they're having modern clothes, but they're already 10 years past trend, right? <laughs> no, that's a very good point. Yeah. Um, so a customer comes in um, who is wearing, a white customer comes in wearing a turquoise dashiki and afro, and he comes in asking for trousers. And so he's met with the floor worker, a floor worker, Captain Peacock, and, uh, you know, immediately they think that they're going to, he thinks he's going to hit it off with them. Um, this customer is played by Jeffrey Holland, who was more well-known for playing Spike Dixon for most of the run of Heidi High, as well as James Twelvetrees on Yurang Malord, um, both which were Croft and Lloyd shows. Yeah. Uh, and he does come back later playing a customer in The Apartment. Oh, that's a good episode. By yeah. the way, tell me what a dashiki is, because I think I know, but I don't know. A dashiki is a, uh, a very long tunic uh, that is worn uh, by... I think it originated in West Africa mm-hmm. and it's formal wear. If, if it's worn with um, pants underneath, it's considered formal wear, but it could also be worn informally um, without pants. So if I see um, like, like men in Abu Dhabi or Bahrain or something, and they have almost like a, it looks like a very white, very kind of formal, like non form fitting shirt that goes well past their knees. Is that the same thing? It is not. That is a thaub. Um, but to the untrained eye, they could look similar. Dashikis are also usually very well um, embroidered and very colorful. Oh. One might say they're zhuzhed up as compared to a thaub. And thank you um, for the five stars very much. Uh, unanimous. Thank you for that. So um, Captain Peacock calls <laughs> out to um, Mr. Humphreys, uh, strides for the Omi with a naf raya, right? So this is his sentence in Polari to make him seem hip. So to break it down, strides is pants. Omi is gentleman. Naf means dull. Uh, for some reason, he's calling his hair style dull. 
which I don't really understand because Captain Peacock is wearing a wig of the same style. <laughs> exactly. And Raya is hair spelled backwards. Right. So hair, H-A-I-R, and R-I-A-H is literally backwards. So that's a, a, a yeah. Polari word. Um, naff is very much a word that is used in Britain today. Like, especially in London. I don't know if like in the North they use it. But to call something naff is kind of like a lower class way of saying something it's, isn't cool. It, it's, it's dull. It's, yeah. it's kind of it's, you know, it's very straight edge, right? Yeah. So, uh, Mr. Humphreys says, well, wish me luck, Dick. Hit him with a tape clay. <laughs> love, love, love that, right? Love it, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Mr. Granger, I haven't understood a single word for several days. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Mr. Granger. And I love Mr. Humphreys' uh, sunglasses, which he keeps on indoors the whole time, of course. Indoors, right. And of the time, they had these cute little sunglasses like tiny little palm trees on either side and if you look at elton google the phrase elton john 70s outfit and you'll see him a lot of times wearing like little cute glasses like that it's so 70s i love it over on the lady side a woman with a turtleneck and orange beret and a long overcoat (laughs) asks if mrs slocum is serving so she's leaning against the clothes rack chewing gum are you buying (laughs) which sounds sounds like sounds Almost like so she's like a dilly boy at a pick, like pick a dilly t- boy exactly <laughs> like like she's propositioning a prostitute yeah and, and so I love that the, the I love that the woman is completely covered from head to toe head very to toe, conservator straight laced glasses yeah. long hair beret she's like clutching her handbag I'm looking for a pair of tan pantyhose <laughs> and everything that <laughs> Mrs. Slocum says to her that's just what she repeats back My name's Betty What's your name I'm looking yes. for a pair of tan pantyhose. Call me Betty. Call me Betty. And then she says, I'm looking for a pair of tan pantyhose. Betty. Come on, Betty. You know. What's your name? Oh, Cynthia. I really do like you, Cynthia. She has no idea how to interact with customers apart from her formality. And so it's like she's hitting on a man at the bar at the pub with Mrs. Axelby. What a beautiful name. Oh, and it does suit you, Cynthia. I like you, Cynthia. She's so cute. And she, the customer doesn't know what to do, and so she <laughs> runs away. <laughs> um, she's trying, God bless her. She's trying, she's Mrs. Trying so hard. She just doesn't, she's not of this world. Cynthia is played by Bernice Adams, who does have minor parts in several Lloyd and Croft shows throughout the 70s and 80s, and she comes back as a typist in A Bliss Girl. If you remember that episode, if you remember that episode, there's a scene where, this has been decades since I've seen it, but I remember her face now that you've said that. Um, She's trying to be a secretary, I think, and she's not a good one. Right, right. And then apparently they announce that she's fired or she's not going to get the job or something. And she has a breakdown, right? And they zoom in on her face, and she has this very the- thematic, grimaced look. And then it fades to black. It was like, this poor woman. And that's her yeah. face. That's her. You're so right. So 
Out of nowhere, Mr. Harmon brings out a central display unit that looks like young Mr. Grace. Like, it seems a little late in the episode to be pulling out a central display unit. I think Lloyd and Croft are like, we have a party to go to. Our wives are, you know, Joanna Lumley, my wife, and my, you know, we're going to go have dinner. Let's just throw in that scene that we were going to use in the next episode and get the hell out of here. Just felt kind of a weird placement. Maybe it was supposed to introduce young Mr. Grace, like because it's shaped like him, and it's supposed to say, "Welcome to my store, welcome to my store." Um, he makes one of his famous adjustments by putting a Phillips screwdriver of in course, the air. Yeah, it just needs a little adjustment. Yeah, um, <laughs> but Arthur English cannot keep a straight face. He breaks that the entire thing because he knows what's going to happen, right? So the lift bell rings, and they all are expecting young Mr. Grace, so they get into position in line. So this part hasn't changed. So he comes in wearing a navy Chinese tunic, and they all greet him. Hi, Big Daddy. <laughs> because that's what Americans would <laughs> that's say. That's what Americans do, right? <laughs> um, young Mr. Grace has just gotten back from the East. He's gotten some ideas from Peking, and you'll find them all in his little red book. So this is a lot to unpack. There with, is a lot right? to unpack with that. So what is the little red book about? What's that? So the little red book is a reference to Mao Zedong, who was the chairman of the Communist Party. Uh, from 1949 to 1976. And he <clears throat> he had a lot of teachings about how to modernize China uh, and how to really benefit and advance the Communist Party. And he put all of his teachings in, uh, in what be- became known as the Little Red Book. And it was distributed all throughout China and everyone had to carry one and Kids were taught in schools and people were, you know, quizzed on it at work, etc. And it became very well known just for, you know, uh, his his philosophy and his teachings. And it's very weird today, especially since, course, he, I suppose he died in 1976. So he probably would have recently died. He was probably in the news That's a true. lot. 1977 yep. is what we're talking about. But of course, Mao Zedong, like he's the, he's on the, the famous uh, poster that's in Tiananmen Square, so he's like, you know, I think he's on the currency, so he's kind yep. of a big deal in, in the. He's the fa- he's he's the father of modern China, yeah, and of course responsible for the Cultural Revolution, which is responsible for the death of how many millions? Who knows? But yeah. a, a very weird figure in Chinese history. So um, yeah. a lot to unpack there. But for our purposes, for our lovely show, um, <laughs> he had a little red book that, uh, yeah. yeah. And so Mr. Young Mr. Grace is you know, getting rid of the American idea, but he still wants to let the staff know that they've done a good job. So he tells them that they've all done very welly. Ugh, this no, is I didn't back get to, that. I, I explain what that welly is. Is that supposed to be Chinese or something? He's, he's, he's mocking East Asian speech patterns in English, right? So much like in the entire Mr. Cato episode, yeah. what he wanty. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, I think it's a good thing that I didn't get that the first time around because it's yeah. not a thing that's proliferated in culture. I I hope anyway. But yeah, yeah, another one of those. You know. Ish. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Mr. Brandon, who are we going to meet next week? We're going to meet a whole new cast of characters next week, aren't we? Well, you know, I just came back from Monte Carlo and I lost forty thousand pounds. <laughs> Um, next week is one of the top three fan favorites, uh, as determined by our scientific poll. Ladies and gentlemen, lords, ladies and gentlemen, Lady Weaver Smith. <laughs> yes, it is the takeover. 
where they all have to pretend to be the upper crust shareholders <laughs> in order to save the store. And randomly, a up-and-coming East London rubbish salesman <laughs> that Mr. Harmon gets to play. You know, it just fit them perfectly. It's crazy. Yeah. That is probably one of the best episodes. And I got to say, the end of this one, deus ex machina at the end? with Yep. Ah! Oh. Yep, he just kind of comes in and puts an end to the um. He's like, American you know what? Ways. Never mind. I I figured it all out. It's all right. Here's another thing, and fade to black. There you go. Yeah, a lot of good costumes. This is one of the best Elton John slash Mr. Humphreys outfits, I'd say. Yep, I agree. Um, so I really like you, Cynthia. Like that is a cool part of this episode. All in all, like if, once you get past like the way out boutique, which by the way, them transforming the floor by putting like drop cloths on the other like yeah. displays that didn't look very cool, it was like okay, eh, not so great. Um, but there really wasn't a lot going on in this episode. There's not a lot of plot in this particular episode, but I think it it makes up with there is <laughs> conflict. There's a lot of conflict that gets resolved. There's, you know, they're playing with language, which I'm a sucker for. Yeah. There's the visual gags of all of the outfits. And um, this, this, is, this is a fan favorite for a reason. For what we don't have in this episode, next episode with the takeover yes. makes up for it in spades. It's amazing. Lots of plot. Lots Lavinia of plot. Lavinia Stableforth. Sir Richard Ryan. Ah! <laughs> Lady, we- Lady Weebelable Smith. And... It, don't forget, um, Mr. Humphrey's cooking. My oxes are fallen. I just can't take it. <laughs> it's going to be a can of soup and a tin opener and two straws. Send them back the soup. <laughs> <laughs> and so, then you see, like, the rubber souffle, like, Yorkshire falling, and it's clearly deflate. made of rubber. Oh, and he's, and he's crying, and then they have the eels that are, I don't know. It's so good, so good. Buck, buckle up, listeners, it's going to be great. Um, <laughs> if you have anything that you'd like us to discuss next week during the takeover or during the I Am Unanimous in this segment, please get in touch with us, and you could do so on Facebook or on Twitter, or you can write us an old-fashioned email at that does suit madam with an e at gmail.com, or you can call us on the Peacock hotline at 662-PEACOCK. That's 662-732-2625. Yeah, so we love getting voicemails. We love getting email. Um, it's harder to share email with the listeners, so if you want to give us a drop us a little line, leave us a voicemail on the Peacock Hotline. We had some lovely messages uh, we heard this episode, so we'd love to hear from you folks. But with that said, I think we should both say... You've, You've all, all done, done very well. well. See you next week. That Does Suit Madam is not endorsed by the BBC and it is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Are You Being Served is a copyrighted program of the BBC. Safety goggles require during use. <laughs>